This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Boomerang country and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We recognise First Peoples of Australia as the original storytellers of this country and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Well, hello and welcome to Episode 6 of Bite Big, a podcast about boss women leading big brands. I'm your host, Amber Bonney, and today I'm excited to be with the fearless powerhouse that is Kate Dillon. Hello. Hi, Kate. Hi, Amber. Kate is the founder and creative director of Melbourne-based fashion accessories brand SheLine. Kate, not only are you an award-winning founder and creative director of SheLine Group, but you do lead a bit of a double life. You're also the director of employee strategy and experience at Gilbert and Tobin Lawyers. That's quite the career duality that you live. You have an exceptionally long achievement list, and I know that you're going to be embarrassed that I'm reading this, but I think for our listeners, everyone's going to want to hear this. So you're a dual qualified lawyer, both here in New York. That's no small feat. So it goes without saying that you have experience in top tier legal practices, but you also have experience in strategy and innovation, coaching and consulting. You hold a Bachelor of Law degree, a Master's in Commercial Law, you're a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and a certified Agile practitioner, plus a graduate from MIT Sloan School of Management. And you were selected to complete the executive program in women's leadership at Stanford in California. Well, the list just actually keeps going. I cut that short. What a boss woman you are. And for our listeners, I'm sure that they're understanding now why we invited you on as our guest. But today in episode six, we're focusing on your business at the SheLine Group, which you founded in 2015. You wanted to create statement handbags that embody women and enable them to walk fearlessly and ignite opportunity. I'm really interested with you sharing with us about how did SheLine Group come about? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me and um, very embarrassing that you read that list. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big list. I think it's just reflective of being uh, a person that has a big love of learning, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, SheLine came about because I just couldn't find a handbag that suited my needs. So I was a billable lawyer. I used to carry reams of paperwork back in 2015 with a big chunky laptop and a big black chunky laptop bag that had the dual zip opening. Oh yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, really liked wearing sort of a power suit and uh, a, a great outfit and the bag would always, you know, not bring match. you down. I have hundred percent, and then you would also be the bag lady because you'd invariably have some sort of not a nice canvas bag because there weren't so many of them around. It was like a Woolies bag or something that had all your paperwork in it. And oh then, yeah, that's not cool. No, no. and your big chunky laptop bag, and then your nice handbag that carried you know the things that you kind of need for day to day makeup. Yeah, barely even though, and yeah. no, no uh, pockets in there. So SheLine absolutely came about from the frustration that I personally experienced yeah, and then observed a lot of other professional women around me experiencing or really any handbag user really. Yeah. So well, I get that. I have one of your bags yes. and uh, it's amazing. I Thank love it. You. It's got so many pockets. It's like absolutely everything can fit in there. Well, Bite Big is about personal mantras and for every episode we like to share our co-host's personal mantra and so my mantra, Bite Big and Chew Like Hell, has really inspired everything that I do really in terms of stretching up, 
thinking big, not being afraid to try new things doesn't always uh, mean I succeed, but I I like to have a crack, basically. (laughs) Your mantra, if you'll let me read that out, anything is possible with guts, determination and persistence. So tell us about that. Uh, I think that is absolutely just, that's my mother's mantra and value system and her father's Wow. Uh, so it was generational. Much, yeah. This is our first intergenerational oh, well, mantra. There you go. Yeah. Uh, my my grandpa, who actually died this year. Oh, I'm sorry. Would always say, you know, anything's possible with guts, determination and persistence and, you know, yep. just give it another go. Try again. No doesn't mean no. You know, don't give up. And that was absolutely uh, instilled in my mum and then very, very much so role modelled and encouraged uh, for my sister and I. And I think that's a big gift because I think if you think in yourself that anything is possible, you do keep trying until you make it, until you get there. And you absolutely are going to make mistakes along the way. Um, but that's where all the lessons are. And that's often where all the gold is. And it's when when you fail and when you don't get to where you want to get to that you get the insight. Yeah. You move forward faster than anyone else who hasn't tried. You mentioned that that growing up, this was something that was sort of talked about as an like a family attitude. Absolutely. Has that changed for you over time? I mean, obviously, like, you know, maybe in teenage years that wasn't as relevant, but coming into your professional career, is that something, and as you started your business with SheLine, is that something that really kind of kicked in for you? It became a lot more literal. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because, you you know, when you run a business, as I'm sure you know, you're constantly um, putting out fires or trying to find new ways to create value or um, solve process pieces or make things work with no money or um, whatever that. that Plenty of hustle going on. Trying to pull out the hat that you're dealing with, particularly if you're bootstrapped. But to be fair, I think the biggest wake up call was probably when I did the bar exam in New. New York. And uh, I had been very privileged, I think, and lucky in my life um, to have been born to who I was born to and to have gone to the schools that I went to and to have been blessed with a brain and somebody who was very interested in learning that I'd never really suffered any really public failure. I had had a sibling die and that was really major. And I Mm. think that was also something that empowered me in terms of, well, nothing is as bad as that. So I'm going to take it on. Um, But I hadn't ever personally properly failed in front of a large group of people People. before. And uh, I did the bar exam and and very publicly had told a lot of people that I was going to do this thing and I was really interested in becoming a fashion lawyer in New York and you have to do the bar exam. So it was like 200 hours of lectures online um, and they sent me honestly like a stack of phone books that was almost as tall as me and you had to go through all of those as well. And then you obviously have to fly over there to do it and you do a prep course before. When I did it, which was quite a while ago, now, um, you had to get 665 points out of 1,000 across 32 subjects. Yeah. And I got 655. So I missed out by 10 points. Um, um, crushing. Yeah. Especially it, to be so close. It was. And it was so many hours because I was working full time. So it was like getting up at um, four to study before going to work as a junior lawyer and then um, coming home at nine or 10 and then studying again at night time as well. That was a big lesson for me because I had not publicly failed before and uh, my mother's response was, oh, well, do it again. Yeah, just do it like, again. Like, just do it again. Like, yeah. You know, no big deal. No big deal. Just, <laughs> yeah. you know, 200 hours of your life. Uh, yeah, and uh, 
Uh, yeah, and, and that's basically the essence of what anything is possible with guts determination and persistence means. Yeah. Um, I think that was probably the, the first proper time that I'd swallowed that statement wholly. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you get back on the horse and I, and I did do it again and I did study again and I did uh, go over there again and I did pass. Oh. Um, and then the GFC happened and then they weren't taking any international lawyers. Um, so I, met, I sought out this woman who was a fashion lawyer who'd, like, done the Louboutin case um, with the coloured shoes for the trademark. And, oh, wow, um, that would have been fascinating. Incredible lady. And she very kindly met with me and she was saying, because basically you have to do a master's in fashion law to specialise. Over there the system is a bit different. You can effectively be a partner as soon as you've done the bar exam, but to right. specialise in an area often you do a master's degree and you couldn't do that by a correspondence. But she said go do a master's in IP in Melbourne and then come back. So I went home and did a master's in IP. Um, It was called Master's in Commercial Law because I did a subject in construction so that I could understand a bit more to support my husband who's a builder. Oh, I love Um, that. But I did seven subjects in IP and one in construction. So it was uh, officially um, um, an MLM um, rather than an IP master's but like technically. Same thing. And uh, I had a very supportive law firm partner that I worked for because I was actually in financial services and managed investment scheme area at the time and he knew that I had this interest in fashion law and uh, he helped me, which was amazing, uh, move from that practice to a very big practice that did specialised in IP and had um, some fashion clients and then moved across once I had the master's degree and I'd got the prize in copyright and started doing IP for two years and then actually realised that I just wanted to run a fashion business. Yeah. So that's kind of where <laughs> it's that all, came from. It's all linked, right? Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm fascinated that you need to do an independent master's in just that area. I think if you want to specialise and be like able to call yourself a fashion lawyer, yeah. uh, which sounded so sexy and it amazing. Did, yeah, like there's a um, lot of power suits and shoes I'm yeah, imagining oh going gosh, on in there. This woman <laughs> that I met with, she I didn't really think it through at, to the level that I should have. It, we were when in, you turned up to meet no, her. No, yeah, we were in New York and it was like flooding rain and um, I had got so excited with buying these hunter gumboots that were like the gumboots to, yep. to have. And anyway, rocked up and she was like head to toe. And a Winton style. Yeah. Oh, n- next level. Like, yep. you know, two layers of stockings that were like very cool with the fishnets over the top of another set that were amazing and these like thigh-high boots that were all strapped up on this incredible suit that was straight out of suits that didn't exist at the time and the hair was phenomenal and the bag was phenomenal and the coat was phenomenal and all the makeup was perfect and I was just like, oh, my gosh, hello. Thank hello, you for being yeah. I'm from Australia. <laughs> yeah. In your gumboots. Yeah, yeah. yeah, my gumboots. It was very wet but uh, anyway, it's amazing I think throughout my life the generosity of people that you don't know that give you these incredible pieces of advice or insight that completely change your career journey, even on a 15-minute conversation, that if you're open to reaching out and asking for advice or just meeting people and, and listening to their perspective, the gifts that you can receive are just phenomenal. Well, you have to be open to that, right? In episode five, I talked to Leah Morris from The Mavens and The Mavens are set up as an advocacy group really for gender equality in media and communications industry. Fantastic. And one of the things that Leah was speaking about was 
her family, you know, advice when she was going out to uni and kind of moving from regional Victoria to the city was all about don't be afraid to ask for help. You have to ask to receive, right? So sometimes, you know, those opportunities sort of seem elusive or like they're not possible, but until you ask, you just don't know. Exactly. And people can be pretty generous with their time. Well, I want to talk about, you know, with guts, determination and persistence. I want to understand, is determination something that's innate for you or something that was learnt based on, you know, family values and dynamic? That's a hard one to answer, to be honest. I think both. Uh, I think I'm innately quite a determined, probably stubborn maybe is the better word, or dogged type of person. I'm... I often am decisive. I also believe in the statement of, you know, don't wait till you believe that you can do something, decide you want to do it and, and then, then go it. and do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Cause you just don't live long enough otherwise. And I don't want to ever have any regrets. And I think that's part and parcel of having a sibling die. You become very aware of your mortality. And so you don't want to waste time. Yeah. So why not jump in and give it a go? And you can always course correct. I don't think it's always been easy and I don't think I've picked the easiest path for the majority of the time. (laughs) And there are definitely times where it feels like it's too hard, but I feel like I get to a point where it does feel like it's too hard and then all of a sudden there's a switch in my brain and I come out fighting and I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. like put your big girl pants on, like how are we going to sort this out? And it's like a wake-up call yeah, and it's just a trigger response. Like I definitely do get into that stage in different spaces of my life where, oh, this is too hard, you know, I don't know how I will continue or do this or how I will get out of this or how I will solve this and then it's like, no, okay, realistically where are we and do we have the right view of what's going on and do I have an accurate perception of the the stress and 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 what is the actual problem what's under the problem and how what are the different solutions that I can apply to this and what um areas in my life can I draw upon and who can I speak to and who's experienced something similar and where can I find a solution and where can I go and have a conversation kick into action by the sounds of things absolutely go into yeah into action mode yeah and you mentioned before you did your master's you you know, understood the IP law, you did those couple of years. So what was that point where you realised that just a law career was not enough? I've always been a closet creative in the law firm. And it's so funny because most lawyers are really creative, but there's no outlet for that really. Yeah, and interesting. And much more so now. Like now it's there's much more ability tools to have and legal processes. design. Yeah. And you can actually leverage creative thinking much more directly. And I think obviously you have problem solving when you're a lawyer, but mm. so much of it is you and the, and the computer uh, and the client on the other side of the world, depending on the, the type of law firm Mm. that you're working in, there's not that direct creativity outlet. Mm. And uh, that was the piece that was missing. And the handbag concept, it being an unmet need and one that I would have loved to play around with, seemed like the perfect opportunity as a first step to just sort of have a play. To doing that. Yeah. Wow. There's not many of you around, I don't think. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Have Uh, you met many other women in law who have other businesses? Uh, I think there are a lot of lawyers actually that have sort of side hustles, but I don't know that there are a lot that intentionally work half-half. They do one and then decide the other one's now going to take off and do the other. Whereas 
I've definitely found that having the two have been mutually reinforcing, provided you're able to set it up in a in a way that is going to work for your life. Yeah, <laughs> and so that's about having conversations around how that would work for the business that you work for and how that works for the business that you're running to make sure that it's sustainable. It's sustainable. And so was that something you really had to pitch to the business? You had to be really clear about the value that you could provide and why that would be valuable. But I also work for an incredibly progressive business that has enabled me to do that for nine years. I mean, that's Um, unbelievable. Like way before COVID happened. And I've worked flexibly there the entire time. Never worked full time there. I've worked full time the whole time, yeah, uh, but, but not, not full for time for them. They've always been very conscious of being able to enable me to flex days and time. Based on uh, other commitments. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of that is because when you run a business, you understand the ecosystem of your own business and the same principles apply, obviously, at a much larger scale. Yeah. To a bigger business, it makes you a better employee because yes. yeah. you, you're actually thinking like an owner and understanding how to be a better employee because you are an owner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, obviously smart people, they recognise that uh, and they recognise the benefit obviously of creativity and innovation in what is typically a very dry uh, industry. But as you said, creativity and and design are problem solving. So if you're in law, it's another form of problem solving, right? Absolutely it is, yeah. Yeah. And all of those um, tools strengthen your ability to provide legal advice and make it more holistic and make it more user-centric mm. and customer-centric. And have empathy for people. 100%, yeah. And that's absolutely where we're going with all of this generative AI that's essentially like a reset on the way so many professional services are provided. Those uniquely human skills are going to become the superpower skills and, and they're the pieces that are going Everything to Everything else becomes functional. Well, it can be outsourced, yep. yeah. 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 Let's talk about walking fearlessly and where that came from and and how that fits into your business, Sheline. Well, I feel like walking fearlessly is a potentially shorter, more powerful way of saying anything's possible with guts determination and persistence. It's a bit more succinct. (laughs) Yeah. And and that was absolutely off the back of the brand being around bold ambition, which is about, you know, you deciding where you want to go and that you can get there if you want it enough and that nothing should be too big or too far away and you should always dream big. It was about fierce elegance. So it's about I am here, I am loud, I am female and I can be strong. It's like another version of bite big. Yeah, (laughs) yes, absolutely it is. I like the synergy. Absolutely it is. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and premium practicality is a reflection of the woman and the bags because it was never, to be honest, truly about bags. The bags had to be functional and fabulous. And so it's about being really pragmatic, um, but like premium in your approach. So really realistic, but positive and completely you and aware of your uniqueness and owning who you are and the authenticity of who you are boldly. And those three pieces, bold ambition, fierce elegance and premium practicality absolutely are the backbone of walking fearlessly. And the expression originally was and is through handbags um, because they're a tool that I hope embolden women uh, to step into any setting and perform at their best because they can access what they need when they need it. And it's not a big branded piece. It's more reflective of the woman and how they're feeling and wanting to express themselves that day, which may be electric blue or sequins or sparkles or some sort of textured leather. And that was where... 
that came from. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have the links to your website, but I would definitely recommend jumping on and have a look because there are some fabulous textures and colours in your range. I want to talk a little bit about resilience and persistence and what keeps you going in spite of hardships because I've heard you speak before at events and you've spoken a lot about um, hardship and resilience and your experiences during lockdown. How do you kind of keep going in those moments of feeling like it's too much? Yeah, I think my brain works uh, at a point where you definitely go, everybody goes into victim mode for a certain amount of time and then I do absolutely kick into an action mode okay, so what is in my control and what is out of my control and how yep. can I move the needle on where I am and how can I make the situation better and, and what steps can I take right here, right now that will make this better? And um, have you ever gotten to a point where you felt like you couldn't bounce back? Like even if it was, you know, 24 hours or a week where you went, actually, I'm just not sure, I've got it in me. Yeah, and you wait and then it kicks in. Yes, and yeah. now you've learned to trust that. Yeah. And you just revel in that feeling. It's important to feel your feelings. Feel the feelings. Because otherwise yeah. you bury them and they come out at the point where you don't want them to come out and yeah. in an inopportune moment. And I've learned that too. I'd like you to talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the work that you were doing in community during lockdown. It really is about resilience and persistence and then anchored to this sense of community. And I know that's really important to you. So, yeah. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, uh, 2020 arrived and uh, obviously we solved the need uh, that women experience when they're needing to take all their (laughs) office utensils to and from where they work. And if you're no longer commuting, uh, you don't really need a handbag to move your gear. In lockdown. No. And you definitely don't need a hand, like a really beautiful handbag to move your gear from the kitchen to the home office. No. So the, the problem that we solved, it almost disappeared overnight and it became uh, radically apparent that if the business was going to stay alive, that there would need to be a different offering for however long this period. That was going to be on for. Yeah, exactly. And I was at home with a newborn and I had a three-year-old and uh, we were living in regional Victoria at the time and my husband was commuting sort of three nights a week to Melbourne to do his job. My newborn had really bad reflux, um, so I wasn't getting much sleep anyway as you do with a newborn, but like a lot less and, uh, you know, we were suffering more than 40% losses in sales. Everything was more expensive, so it was more than 30% increase in logistics and freight and materials and it was just quite quite difficult to move anything and everything was delayed. And I'd also put most of my capital up to invest in a really exclusive uh, premium, premium range of bags that arrived in February before the lockdown started in March that were totally not uh, PC to be selling, you know, almost $1,000 handbags to commute. <laughs> Man, you weren't commuting. And no so. one was commuting. No. So, uh I absolutely, it was a tough time. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't good. And uh, I am always keen on wearing slogan sweatshirts. Yeah. I have one that says superhero. And uh, I put up a photo on my personal Instagram account, which was more of a rally cry to myself yeah. with like milk vomit on it and everything saying, yeah. you know, we can do anything. Women are amazing. We're going to get through Keep this. Going. It's yeah. going to be okay. And uh, all these people commented on it saying, gosh, you should make a walk fearlessly top. And that um, absolutely inspired the idea of 
maybe there's something that I could make that is entirely Australian made, like every single element that brings together a whole group of other small businesses that are also suffering and that showcases the abilities that we have here in our backyard because we are so dependent on um, international. international manufacturing. Uh, maybe this is a this is a point of difference and, and a really good initiative that's feel good, that's going to make me feel better, that may save my business, that would absolutely bring awareness to other businesses and if that was the way it died then I'd feel really good about it and maybe that's where I should explore. Did that little pivotal moment become a new kind of fire in your belly at that yeah. point once you once you got that because you were Direction. tired, yeah. you know, two children in a regional town during lockdown, like that doesn't sound like fun to anyone plus, you know, with a flailing business and a product that was no longer required. Like I can imagine finding a new sense of inspiration would have been, yeah, quite the ray of sunshine in a very dark space. Critical, critical. And then uh, I absolutely channeled any spare time into that. Into that, And yeah. so it was a space I knew nothing about, like like nothing about. Like I don't know anything about designing clothes, making specs for clothes, what's what's involved to create some apparel, um, how, how you sew. Like I'd, I'd learned how to sew at a, at a certain level to make handbags yeah. um, and had made samples with the handbags and dabbled with sewing in the past and had a sewing machine but by, by no means was a dressmaker. Cushion covers. Yeah, 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 yeah. and like not great ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I had worked at Feathers when I was at law school. Yeah. And Marg is incredible and knew that she manufactured some things in Brunswick. And so literally cold called the garment manufacturer and said, Mr. Longbow, mm. I'm a handbag manufacturer. I used to work for Margaret Porritt. I know yeah. that you manufacture for feathers so that you, you must be amazing. I'm keen to make a sweatshirt end to end Australian made. I don't really know where to start. I have some concept about how to, you know, pull together a supply chain because I do that with my bags. I know how to design, manufacture and sew bags, but I appreciate that's quite different to apparel. Yeah. Is that something that you can support me with? And he, he was amazing. He absolutely um, absolutely gave me like a whole book of contacts to talk to, um, some a whole list of questions to consider and, and what to think about at each stage. And But then each person along the journey would then also give me three or four or five contacts as well, even if they were competitors of theirs, just because the, the concept itself, I think, was giving people a feel-good energy mm, that was Probably enough. a sense of hope in their dark cloud. Well, yeah, yeah. And so that there's all these amazing, like, veterans of industry, like, really incredible people got on board. Um, Amazing. uh, Yeah. And so I thought I absolutely need to go and and this was all over Zoom and phone calls and text messages and couriers that got lost in lockdown, obviously, because you couldn't go and speak to them. And uh, it turns out that a sweatshirt is not simple at all. (laughs) It's not a straightforward process. It's got uh, lots and lots of different elements that obviously go unseen if you're sending something overseas. Um, And arguably, if you're sending it to overseas factories, they're much bigger and they have a lot of these pieces in-house. But it was really important that I was sort of getting each of the makers involved and showcased. So all of the small businesses that were like my small business, having all of those people involved. And then after meeting those people over the phone, finally being let out of lockdown and going to meet them in person and like feeling like we'd known each other for years, deciding that it was critically important that I interview them. Um, And so I went around and videoed them all on my phone thinking that'd be uh, sufficient. 
so I did interviewed the first, the garment manufacturer and um, the cotton weaver and the industrial wash house and the plastic manufacturer, the recycled plastic manufacturer. And uh, all of these conversations had gone for like an hour and a half. And that was just the first few I'd interviewed. And it became very apparent very quickly that this was just unbelievable stories that I wasn't doing it justice capturing it on a phone and it really cemented the fact that this initiative was so much bigger than my business and something that needed to be uh, appropriately scaffolded and put out so that it could be used as an asset arguably at a much higher level outside of SheLine that has nothing to do with SheLine so that it could demonstrate that a very small business can make one product that touches 300 Australian hands and if, if a small business could do something like that, like imagine if a big business the ripple effect even just business. did one skew or, or one yeah. element of all skews or even just showcased the difference that it would make if there was more funding in this area or if there was more insight an ability for people to go in and step into apprenticeships and have funding for apprenticeships because there isn't the funding for apprenticeships in fashion. And, you know, people can easily name builders and carpenters and electricians, but they don't always know that there's such options as being like a cutter or a seamstress or uh, a weaver or um, a, a washhouse um, specialist or a diet. Yeah. Like there's all these other specialties that we have, but we don't have the succession planning in place because we don't have the infrastructure and the funding behind it. And if we don't support it, we'll lose it. Yeah, locally. And that would be such a shame, wouldn't it? Well, it's a th- I think, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but the, it's a $32 billion industry that's 77% women employees. It, like it contributes a lot to our GDP. Wow. And it could contribute so much more if it was appropriately supported or focused on as a growth piece. And I think, you know, it's not going to be the last pandemic that we have. No. And it, it's probably worth investigating. I appreciate it's a wicked problem and Mm. I'm stepping into it as an outsider and it's easy to make sweeping statements, but it seems like it's the perfect area that's ripe for disruption that could bring great strength to Australia and provide a lot of jobs and have a real impact on our economy if there was some ways to support it. I mean, a lot of jobs, but also the quality and integrity of the product. Absolutely. So, you know, you're reducing... Waste. All the carbon. Yeah, like yeah. the carbon emissions, From the, the fact that, yeah. you know, you're buying better quality, you're not going to necessarily throw it out as quickly, it's yep. going to stay as a staple piece in your wardrobe. Yep. Uh, and I know that, you know, there certainly are in for those who can afford to make those decisions in their life, people are choosing now to be a bit more considered about the pieces they buy. Absolutely. Um, for those reasons, exactly. What an opportunity! Let's. Um, that feels like it's a it's a government <laughs> it's a government it's based. A, it's a loaded yeah. wicked problem that's multi layered. But it, I think the the stories from these amazing people who have been in the industry for 30, 40, 50 years, um, telling these stories about how they've survived multiple different downturns and the globalization and all the outsourcing overseas and componentry and capability going overseas and and how to manage margins and how that's become really difficult because you just can't compete with the labor costs internationally and so how would you how would you support that so that that's more desirable here in Australia and 
and then it's the whole consumer education piece around actually what they're buying and and why that is worth investing more in but then also making that accessible because not everybody can afford to pay that but then you are paying Australians so yeah how do you democratize that multiple and multiple pieces that would feed into making that a possibility I want to talk about being a brand boss and when we were researching for this podcast and we had lots of workshops internally with all the women in the business talk about what was this going to be about and and we got onto the track about mantras and we talked a lot about do we want to use the word boss and there was, you know, there's all this negative stigma around boss, a, you know, coming from a very masculine gendered place and then it coming from a negative place of, of kind of authority and and being autocratic, which didn't sit comfortably for people. But then we sort of got to the end we're like, actually, we're just going to take back that word and, and kind of own it and lean into it. And so I want to ask you about what that means for you. So you've got these dual roles. Do you see yourself as a boss? What, what's the connection with that word? How do you feel about that? I love that you say that you're reclaiming it. I think that's really good. I think uh, in life, actually, what I've learned, at least my observation from my own experience, has been that you need to be the boss of yourself and that you are in control of you and that you have the ability to change something if it's not right. And I think it's super important that you consider yourself as your own business and you actually think about it like that. And you think about, are you achieving what you want to achieve? And is the experience of you what you're intending it to be? And where do you want to go to and what are the steps that you need to take to get yourself there? And if there aren't pieces that are aligned, how are you as the boss of you going to take control and make it more aligned and ensure that you're satisfied and engaged and doing what you want to do? Because you do only live once and there really isn't time to waste on things that, you know, are draining at, at, at a huge level or um, that don't align with your values. I mean, there will always be aspects of things that you do have to do that will, it can't be perfect all the time, but fundamentally it shouldn't be depressing or it shouldn't be not aligned with your values and and the direction that you're wanting to go in. And there are always multiple ways and there is never one solution. There are always many solutions and you are always able to course correct. Yeah. Has there been a time where you've just feel like you've really fucked up and you need to course correct? Yeah, many. Uh, That's where all the lessons are. Many, many, many times. I think that was the gift of failing the bar exam. Or the public failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because um, I think experiencing that was mortifying, but also like, well, I I can do that now. I've done that now. And I hope no one else has to have a public mortifying failure like that. But realistically, no one cares about anyone else really other than themselves to be honest like I felt like everybody would be talking about it but nobody like they're like oh that's a shame for Kate Mm. or haha Kate failed or hopefully not but realistically everybody else's opinion is their opinion and it actually has nothing to do with you so it's about you taking control and how you steer the ship when you are in troubled waters rather than so much how you steer the ship when you're not and and that's where your integrity piece and your values come to light and so it's about you being the boss of you and making the decision. Let's talk about a biggest B moment for you. Quite big. It's got two Bs in it. We like the idea of um, thinking about a B word. When I think of you, I think of brave. 
it definitely comes to mind. Actually, all the words on my Miro post-it lids actually I feel like <laughs> resonate with you. But what's been a big B moment that you think's had the most impact for you? I think if you'd think about boss or brave or bold or best or brand, the fundamental thread that runs through all of those is being authentic to yourself and being comfortable to sit with yourself. And I don't think I fully was able to do that until I was in my mid-30s. But I think, gosh, that's powerful. Once you're aware of who you are and you're comfortable being authentically you and and radically transparent about that, it doesn't matter what happens. Like you, you know who you are and you know what's right for you. And then you have the confidence to be able to navigate appropriately as, as long as it's aligned with who, who you are who and what you, are. you stand for. Yeah. And it's such a shame really, isn't it, that these lessons come so late yeah. in life. Yeah. Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which we talk about with all guests, is this sentiment of, you know, I wish I'd read or I'd wish I'd watched or I'd wish I'd listened to. And, you know, thinking about those lessons, of course, you know, some of the benefits of ageing is wisdom, right? Yeah. Wisdom and confidence and just giving less fucks than you did yes. in, your, in your 20s, yes, right? Yes, yes. Um, what can you think of that you sort of wish you could have told yourself or wish you could have read in, in your 20s that would have helped you on that journey? Gosh. Like, is there a book, you know, sometimes I, I still find this when, you know, I'm approaching 50 and, you know, someone says, oh, you've got to read this book. And you're like, where has this been all my life? How did I not even know? And you read it and you're like, oh my God, like this author or whatever it is. You see a TED talk and go, this is just next level. It would have been great if I had have known that when I was you know, 18 or 25 or? There are so many TED Talks. <laughs> um, I think, is it Margaret Heffernan has this amazing talk about social capital and the power of relationships and it's called something around the pecking order or, don't, or forget the pecking order. I think everything is about relationships and I think everything is about how you support others and how you give because actually the more that you give, it comes back three, four, five fold. So it's not about going out to take, it's about going out to give and actually not expecting anything in return and it all being a long-term investment. And it's about what is the benefit of someone else having a relationship with you and and how, how are you providing a positive experience for that other person? But to be honest, I don't know that I wish I had read or done anything differently because all of the experiences that I had, I think because I've been in a privileged and fortunate position, have been from exploring opportunities that were unconventional and that were non-traditional that did often result in an awkward or uncomfortable outcome yeah. that I learned from, from that yeah. I wouldn't have been able to digest from a book or a talk or a movie or a podcast or a letter in the same way as if I hadn't Had actually experienced lived it. and experienced it. Yeah. And I think I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't experienced all those different pieces because that is what shapes you. And that's the beauty of everyone being unique uh, because everybody's lens and experience and life journey is different. And so everybody's value is special and unique to them. And I think it's about being able to articulate and own that and know yourself and feel comfortable in that space that you're really valuable and you are enough. 
I really love that. I really think you should write a book. Have you got any books in the wings? <laughs> I want to write a book. Yeah. I can't, I can't decide what on. And I feel like that's a whole new learning journey as well. Uh, yeah. Yes, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. <laughs> Just add that to your side hostel number 486. Have you the book? No. I haven't, but I have yeah, I several in my got, brain. I was going to yeah. say, I'm sure you do. I'm but sure again, that whole idea book. of what topic, I think I'd end yeah. up with like 3,000 Miro boards trying to determine like which is it business? Is it yeah. design? Is it like personal yeah. experiences? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot that I could focus on. And the, and the process of you doing that would probably be amazing and there would be so many gifts coming out of just that process anyway. I know, so, it's there, but I also want to do my PhD, so like that's in the... You know, tie them together. Yeah. You write a book as part of the PhD. PhD. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Well, Kate... You are definitely a boss co-host. I really want to thank you um, for joining me today. It's been so wonderful and for showing us your version of biting big and sharing your mantra, anything is possible with guts, determination and persistence. I really wanted to point out a couple of things that I've taken my little notes onto here. One is you're talking about the ripple effect in community. So that experience during lockdown being bigger than you, bigger than Sheline. And, you know, I definitely think there's a future proposition in that sentiment, which I'm excited to wherever you take that to see how does Sheline evolve into something else. I really love the idea of you being your own boss and thinking about yourself as your own business. Yeah, Uh, I think that's really inspiring for people to not feel like they're just on a journey they have no control of and they're just here existing and they're doing their, you know, nine to five and they have no influence over what's happening. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment. I most of all feel the feelings, you know, I think there's something really really beautiful about acknowledging that sometimes you do just have to feel the feelings and, Mm. you know, being publicly vulnerable, I think is also really important, both for women and for men. Being okay with that and saying, yep, I did, I fell over or I did something wrong or I, you know, whatever it was, but Mm you know, knowing that that's going to be that opportunity to to learn. Now, the podcast is produced by lots of incredible women and made for women. And to show our gratitude, we donate 500 on your behalf to a charity and you've chosen Fitted for Work, which I was very excited about because we support Fitted for Work also at Edison Agency. For those of you who don't know Fitted for Work, they help women experiencing disadvantage to become work ready and gain secure employment. And they do that by helping um, get ready for job interviews, providing clothes and outfits and, and also training and development. Tell us how you came across Fitted for Work and what significance that has for you. I have been a big supporter of Fitted for Work for a long time. I regularly gift them bags if I have inventory that I I haven't been able to move that's still really beautiful product. I regularly donate clothing. I just think what they do is fabulous. So, yeah, any any opportunity that Sheline has been able to support them, that's absolutely been the place where I would go. Yeah, well, lots of synergy because, yeah, we've been supporting them as well. And, again, you know, women finding paid work, you know, coming out of whether it's disadvantage or they might have just even been out of the workforce for a really long time and they've lost their confidence. So it is a great organisation and we'll definitely be putting the link in for the show notes if anyone wants to support them. Well, thank you. It's been a wonderful experience and I know that all of our listeners um, will really get something out of this session. So thanks so much. I'm your host, Amber Bonnie, and until next time, may you bite big and chew like hell. Yeah.